Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall, um, they shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer to ask his uh, guidance on our study this evening. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we can come to you and prayer that we have this immediate access because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us on the cross and that as he opened the way into uh, heaven as the first fruit of resurrection and the ascension, Father, we have immediate access because he is our high priest. And Father, on that basis, we have the privilege to come before you, to speak to you, to communicate with you about all the issues in life. And now as we study your word, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand these things, that as we think and talk about the way that members of the body of Christ are to interact with one another, the way they are to to minister to one another and show love for one another, that you would help us to have objectivity and insight into our own lives, into the way in which we uh, deal and interact with other believers, that we might uh, be challenged by the Holy Spirit in terms of uh, greater ways to uh, consistently apply these truths in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's been three weeks since I left to go on vacation, and most of you have uh, probably forgotten what we were studying then. I know I did a great job uh, while I was gone, as did David Dunn, and uh, we're very far- fortunate that we have uh, such a, a high-caliber uh, replacements when I when I go, that's one of the great privileges that we have as a congregation, especially with, with Ike, is to watch a young man like that as he goes through that process of seminary, uh, learn and develop in his spiritual gift, watch, the, watch someone like that go from uh, those first very tentative steps when uh, uh, any, any of us first get in the pulpit and we take our, we're, we're a little concerned, more concerned about everything that we're doing. We forget whatever it is we're trying to teach, and who knows what comes out. Somewhere at my dad's house, there's a tape hidden. I didn't hide it. I just don't know where it is. Uh, and when I find it, I'll destroy it. Of the very first time I spoke in a church, 
Uh, reason I say that is because there are people who ask the question, well, and we've had a couple of emails from folks who said, well, I was looking for Ike's messages on, on the Internet. And I have um, uh, encouraged young guys who are first starting in the pulpit ministry to not put themselves under that pressure of uh, that kind of exposure now. I mean, you used to not have anything like that. Uh, because, you know, if you went someplace and they taped you, they would give it to the people who were there, and that was pretty much it. But now, if you put it out on uh, on the Internet, it may be in your life forever, and who knows how you might feel about what you did in your first message uh, 20 years into your ministry. I hope that no one no one shows up or resurrects any, anything that I taught the first five years, because you're, you're on training wheels, you're learning. And so I give them the op- option, encouragement, and I give them the option to decide whether or not they want to put their material out there or, or, or not. And Ike has chosen not to put it out there, and I think that's a wise decision. And it takes a little pressure off, gives him the opportunity to grow. Um, some people get the idea that because someone has a, the gift of pastor-teacher, that that just means that they can sit down, open their Bible, and it's something that happens automatically, and they can just immediately read it, and they know all of the doctrines that are there and understand it, and they can stand up and, and uh, expound on the Scriptures. And that's not true. It is a gift that is that must be developed, a gift that must be uh, trained, and you must go through a process of education and learning the Bible and letting the Word of God uh, just saturate your own soul and to think through how all think through all these doctrines individually and on as well as how they integrate with one another and I remember a conversation i won 't mention his name, but i'll uh, you may guess uh, with one of the pastors that I have uh, mentored over the last uh, ten years or so, and he has spent uh, some thirty plus years in Bible class, learning, reading consistently, part of his life, part of his uh, career over the years. He was very consistent, and he studied and listened to um, hundreds and hundreds of hours, uh, many of them going over and over again, all the basic doctrines plus many advanced doctrines. And I remember not too long ago he was... Uh, teaching a series on a uh, some doctrines, some basic doctrines, and he said, "You know, you really have to think through. It's it's one thing to sit in the pew and think you understand it, but it is something completely different to stand up and try to explain it, to organize it, and to uh, expound on on the scriptures. You have to understand it and think about it in a completely different way than you ever have before." And a lot of people may not understand that. Uh, they think that the spiritual gift just sort of magically makes it happen. It is a, an enhancement. A spiritual gift is an enhancement, an ability given by the Holy Spirit, but not without our own uh, work and our own effort. Uh, there are some people, I think, that because of their natural gifts, their natural talents as, as educators or communicators, that that combined with a spiritual gift of communication uh, it works to make them a different kind of communicator. Plus, Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 12 that people, individuals, receive their gifts in different measure. 
So you may have one man with the gift of pastor teacher to one degree, and you may have another man who has been given that gift to a much, much greater uh, degree. So these things are not the same for every person. I also believe that uh, we may have more than one spiritual gift and how those gifts uh, interconnect with one another is very interesting. Interesting. I've met men who have uh, gifts of administration as well as gifts of pastor-teacher, and that looks very different from somebody who has the gift of pastor-teacher along with the gift of helps or the gift of, of mercy. And so that combined with their natural personality, that combined with their uh, natural talents that they have, all means that these things mix up. Spiritual gifts, I think, are likened to primary colors and how you take those colors and then put them on the palette, mix them, and blend them, and then apply them uh, to the canvas is going to look uh, very different from person to person. And so these... Uh, Young, new pastors who go through training, go through seminary, uh, can only really learn how to develop that, that, that ability, that skill to explain, to teach, to be relaxed in front of people by uh, spending time in front of people. And so it's really a great privilege for congregations then, uh, 10 years from now, to be able to look out and see the men who've come through that congregation, the men. They can say, I remember when I, I, I was just could barely wait for him to finish that first time and just praying that he he would make it. And we've all seen guys like that. I mean, I'm sure I was that way uh, when I first, first started as well. So it's a, a great privilege we have to be a part, to, to allow God to use us in that ministry in the life of these men as God is preparing them for their their future ministry and to give them opportunities to to teach and that's part of the role of a local church which is what we're talking about in our passage in Hebrews chapter 10 uh, verse 24 and following there we read and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good deeds or good works and this is a verse that is just really pregnant with meaning and significance because it is one of those verses that relates to the life of the body of Christ, how individual members of the body of Christ, individual believers, are to relate to one another. And that is a very important uh, doctrine that we see this uh, verse referencing. To, referencing, And so, for example, we've started with the doctrine of one another, and we made it through, I think, 11 points the last time. So I'm just going to briefly take us through the last couple of points I covered the, uh, right before I went on vacation. I'm not going to go back to point one every time. We have, I have over 20 points in this, so I don't want to uh, just repeat myself again and again. Uh, the eighth point was we're to be accepting of one another. We're to receive one another, as one translation puts it, using the Greek word proslambano, to accept, to receive, to be open, that when we see people come into the congregation, we are to be welcoming. We're to have an attitude where they feel they can be put at ease and feel comfortable. And we all know that there are times when people come in that are not, we look at them and go, well, do they really fit? Uh, we look at somebody and we think, uh, my goodness, how in the world do they fit with our congregation? 
and yet we never know what they're going to look like as a result of taking in doctrine for two or three years and how they might change. And so we need to have that attitude of accepting people, not in terms of where they are, but in terms of what God can do with them through the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God. So we are to receive one another just as Christ also received us. And and um, that's a comparison we'll see in a couple of other of the passages we look at uh, this evening, is that Jesus Christ received us and we weren't all that attractive to begin with. Now, some of you think you might have been, but uh, we were all equally obnoxious in our unrighteousness to God. And we didn't look very good to him. We didn't look attractive. There wasn't anything winsome about us that uh, would make the Lord desire us because of who and what we are. And it is all based on him and who and what he is. And so this is a perfect expression. All of these actually are perfect expression of grace orientation where the, the foundation for these attitudes is really based on the character of God because of who God is and what Christ did on the cross. We are to have a different attitude and approach to others who are members of the body of Christ. Uh, the ninth point was... Also from Romans 15, Romans 15:14, that we were to, are to admonish one another, and that's not necessarily a negative term. The English word admonish sounds that way, but this is not a, does not give you license for one believer to get in another believer's face unless you've developed a context of communication with that person where they give you the liberty to do so. You can't just walk across a church because somebody is dressed a certain way or says something that offends you or that you didn't think was right and then uh, tell them that was wrong. This isn't a um, <clears throat> an excuse for arrogant self-righteousness. This is just describes what goes on within any family. If you have in your background, some people don't today because the breakdowns in their own family, but if you have a within your family, within your background, a, a, a frame of reference for seeing a close family relationship between brothers and sisters and parents and uh, their siblings, aunts and uncles, then you see this take place. People who have close friends, they have the freedom to say to somebody, you know, you probably shouldn't have said it that way. You were a little bit obnoxious to that waitress today at lunch, or uh, you're, uh, the way you tipped might not have been the most gracious way, or whatever it might be. It's a way that you can you communicate to somebody is only friends who have established a, a, a framework, a relationship of intimacy and trust, uh, can do that. And so that's the idea of admonishment. It has the idea of it's something based on knowledge. The Greek word that's used there, nuthateo, indicates it's based on the root nous, meaning uh, thought, and so it is something that has been given thought. It is not something that is flippant. It is something that is uh, thought out and as the basis for the uh, encouragement of another another believer. Uh, the tenth point: we are to have the same care for one another. First uh, Corinthians twelve twenty five: that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. We should. Not necessarily show favoritism. There are some people we're closer to and some people that are others, but we should care about uh, 
some, and we shouldn't necessarily set up one group within the church as being more worthy than another group within the church. James says the same thing over in James 2 when he deals with the case of the uh, prejudiced usher who gives all the favoritism to the wealthy person that comes in and just ignores the poor person that comes in. And then we came to the 11th point, which is where I stopped, I believe, the last time. Serve one another through love. Galatians 5.13, this is a passage that uh, focuses on the uh, mandate that Paul gives in Galatians to love one another. And in Galatians chapter 5, they have one of the greatest and most significant chapters in all of the Bible related to the spiritual life. And so let's look at that just briefly before we uh, we move on. Galatians 5.13 states, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. And when we see that word called, that immediately takes us back to the responsibility that we have as members within the body of Christ. The calling of the believer is tantamount to his adoption, his being placed within within the body of Christ. And so that within the body of Christ, we're all equally members of the body of Christ. We are members of God's royal family. Uh, in Galatians, Paul has developed a doctrine of adoption to a higher degree than it had been before. We're adopted into God's royal family, and as adult sons, as we are sons in God's royal family, there is a uh, level of conduct that is expected of us. We are expected to behave in a way that uh, that reflects honorably upon God the Father, and upon the family, uh, the royal family of God. And so that is the reference to the calling here. We've been called to liberty. Liberty is a characteristic of every member of the family of God. But members of the family of God can use that liberty as an opportunity for the sin nature. We call that licentiousness. We treat grace as if it's a license to sin. Now, some people... Uh, get very upset about that. Uh, you, every now and then when you hear people teach on uh, 1 John 1, 9, that when you sin in the Christian life, whether it's a minor sin of, of um, telling what might be considered a little white lie to a major sin of murder or adultery or fornication or any of the things that people get shocked about, whatever it might be, All you need to do to recover your fellowship with God is to admit to him that you did that, just to confess it. That's all confession means. Confession doesn't mean that you have to work up some sort of emotion, work up a a remorse over the sin. There's a lot of people, though, that teach that, that there has to be some measure of human work there. But no, the Bible just says all you need to do is confess, which means to admit or acknowledge that you've done something. And people say, well, that's just too much like a like a license for sin. And my response is, but but everybody uses any level of freedom licentiously in the process of growing up. Almost everyone here did. I'm not going to ask for any personal testimonies or anybody to raise their hand, but I know that when young children grow up and they reach that age somewhere around 
I don't know where it is today, but uh, maybe around 9 or 10 and 11, where the parents begin to trust them enough to stay at home by themselves without adult supervision. Maybe they're just going to go to the store or they're going to go uh, pick up uh, uh, pick up dinner somewhere. They might be gone 15 or 20 minutes. And then as time goes by and the child seems to be trustworthy and as they have some, some maturity, they're given freedom to be at home alone and the parents are gone. And there's I don't think there's any person that hasn't used that freedom to do something they knew they shouldn't have done, that if their parents were there, that they would not have, uh, they wouldn't have done it. But the parents were gone, and so they used that liberty, that freedom, to do something irresponsible and something that was was not uh, they knew was not permissive. Everybody's done that, and we learn after a while that you know we really don't get away with it. Uh, somehow we always get caught, something always happens, something negative turns out, and we get in trouble eventually. And, of course, today parents have nanny cams, and so, you know, kids, I don't know that kids could ever believe that they, they were unseen or unheard. But the point is that as a new believer, as you grow, you have the freedom to uh, serve the Lord, the freedom to love the Lord and live on the basis of the Christian life or to use your your liberty for the uh, sin nature. And we've all done that. Some of you are still doing that. Some of you haven't grown through that phase yet, but eventually you will. And when other people think and get all upset because they see you abusing grace, then they get uh, all upset about it and they get their knickers in a knot over it and decide that uh, you shouldn't be allowed to do that. So the church has to come down and do something in order to in order to stop that kind of behavior. Well, that's not how people grow. That's not how you come to maturity. You have to learn that as an adult, operating as an adult, you have to learn to make those decisions from within your own soul and your own maturity. So Paul is saying to them in verse 13, we have not been called to liberty. That's not to, we have been called to liberty. That is the characteristic of our of our position in Christ, our, our position as a member of the royal family, but we're not to use that liberty as license. We're not to use it as an opportunity to the flesh, but instead we're to serve one another. We're not to serve ourselves because when we're using that, that liberty as a license to sin, we're just feeding our own uh, self-absorption. We're feeding our own narcissism. We're, we're wanting to uh, do whatever it is that makes us happy instead of thinking about others. And so the contrast there is between being uh, uh, self-centered and self-oriented and other-centered and other-oriented, that we are to use that liberty as an opportunity to think about other people and to help other people within the body uh, within the body of Christ. And the Greek word that's used there for serve is the Greek word duluo, which is a word that can mean serve, but it also was a word used for slaves and slavery in the Roman Empire. And slavery is a much harsher concept to our 21st century emancipated American uh, democratic ears. But in the Roman Empire, what you heard when you heard that word was something more akin to slavery than voluntary servitude. And so when Paul is saying this through love, serve one another, 
he is saying there is almost this level of an enslaved relationship to other members of the body of Christ. There's because of our responsibility for one another. Now that takes us to the twelfth point. Now the twelfth point is more closely related to the first command that we studied back in point two, which is to love one another, the broad command that Jesus gave to the disciples that we are to love one another as Christ loved the church. So that's the model. How did Jesus Christ love the church? He loved the church by going to the cross and dying as a substitute for our sins, paying the price for our sins. That's how he demonstrated love. He didn't demonstrate love by coming to the church and coming to unbelievers and putting his arm around their shoulder and talking about how wonderful they were and God just gave them all kinds of potential and let's just let's just try to spread our wings and fulfill our potential that God gave us. There's truth to that, but that's secondary. It comes down the road. The the first issue has to do with with dealing with the basic problem that we have, and that is the sin problem. And so Christ, in love, dealt with that. How did he show that he loved us? How did God the Father show that he loved us? John 3.16, in this way, God loved us that he gave his unique son. That first word in the Greek text there doesn't mean God loved us so or so much. It means in this manner, in thusly, literally, it's hutos, uh, it's an adverb, thusly or in this manner, God loved us. He gave his only begotten son. And so he shows his love by the fact that he solves the problem, which is the sin problem. So that pattern of what Jesus Christ did on the cross becomes the pattern for what love is and becomes the pattern for understanding the mandate here in uh, in this point, that we're to be kind to one another, forgiving each other. Now, notice the connection here in this point between these two ideas, kindness and forgiveness. Kindness is mercy in action. It's grace in action. It is showing undeserved kindness, undeserved favor to someone who has done things that certainly don't deserve kindness whatsoever. They uh, may have irritated us. They may have made us angry. They may have betrayed us. They may have hurt us in, in many different ways, but we need to be kind to one another. And kindness is a difficult attribute, if not an impossible attribute, to develop because the orientation of the sin nature is so self it's the sin nature is so self absorbed that when we just feel the least bit pricked or offended, then we react. We easily become irritated, angry, put out because someone else has not treated treated us or done something the way we think they should. But in contrast to that, we are to be kind, and that kindness is expressed by forgiving one another. And you often see this in families, that with, if, if, and you may know someone in your frame of reference where you have a family like this. Uh, I've certainly seen this in some families I know where people within the family, siblings, can do things to one another that 
when somebody outside the family has done that to someone in the family, then that relationship with the person outside the family has virtually ended. But because there's that blood relationship within the family, then the offense is stepped over. It is treated lightly. We all also know of cases where people that we know and we like and we approve of have done something we are uh, more likely to step around their faults and overlook their flaws than someone we don't like who has a, maybe the same flaw, the same fault to a worse degree. And so the mandate here is that we are to, as members of the royal family of God within the family, we are to be kind to one another. Those, that's other believers, doesn't matter what they've done to you. We are to be kind to one another and forgiving each other. Ephesians 4.32 and Colossians 3.13. Now this principle of forgiving one another is actually based in the event on the last night that the Lord was with the disciples in John 13 when he washes the disciples' feet. That was the prelude, the setup, the illustration that he was giving that uh, ended in his issuing the command to love one another as I have loved you. When he said in John 13, 34 and 35, new commandment that I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. He began that chapter, uh, John, the, the, the gospel writer began that chapter by uh, relating what happened when the disciples came together for the Passover and that the Lord then uh, girded up uh, the towel around his waist, took the basin, and began to wash their feet. The washing of the feet was not a picture of just being a servant. Okay, going back to our previous point, which was serving one another. That's not what the Lord was teaching he was teaching a particular way of serving one another, and that was through forgiving one another. Through forgiving one another. In John thirteen, fourteen, Jesus said, If then your Lord if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, when we look at that passage, immediately you have to make a decision as to whether the Lord is speaking literally or figuratively, using a figure of speech. If he's speaking literally, then what that would mean is that we have to literally get a basin of water and literally, physically wash one another's feet on a regular basis. Now, there are some uh, Christian denominations like the Mennonites, I believe, and some others that do that. They believe that when they have the Lord's table, they have a foot-washing ceremony as part of the Lord's table because they take this literally. But the other option is that Jesus is speaking figuratively because he has given this, this, this clear uh, teaching aid, training aid, visual image where he washes their feet, but he pointed out as in his conversation with Peter that even though they were all clean except for Judas, they still needed to have a regular cleansing of partial cleansing of the feet, which is tantamount to confession of sin. Uh, the fact that they were all cleansed, that was uh, positional cleansing. We've talked about that passage many times, and yet there needs to be an ongoing 
cleansing. That ongoing cleansing is related to the forgiveness of sin. So what Jesus was illustrating is the way we serve, one way in which we serve one another, and the way he was teaching service in that passage was that we serve one another by forgiving one another. That's how we emulate what the Lord did in that particular passage. So he stated there, you ought to wash one another's feet. That fits under the umbrella of his later mandate in that passage to love one another by forgiving one another. Now, this is made clear in passages such as Ephesians 4.32. And notice the connection in that verse. The first uh Mandate is to be kind to one another, to be kind to one another. And the second is a participial phrase that that modifies or defines or explains how that kindness operates. It operates by forgiving one another, an instrumental idea. Be kind to one another by forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, that just gets pretty difficult. The only way you can do that is through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. If you're walking by the Holy Spirit, he produces the fruit of the Spirit in you as you grow and mature. He produces love. That's the first fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, uh, 21, 22, because that's what Paul was talking about in that context going back to uh, verse 13, which we just looked at. But here in Ephesians 4.32, we're kind to one another by forgiving one another, and the uh, comparison is to Christ. That's the model again, going back to John 13.34 and 35. So if you don't understand how God demonstrated his love for us at the cross, then it's difficult to understand how we are to love others to correctly understand that and how we are to be kind to one another and forgive one another. This is one of the the reasons it's important to keep thinking and teaching and learning and probing about the the all the doctrines related to what Christ did on the cross because in that work we come to understand just exactly what it was that occurred that God did for us in terms of forgiving us. It wasn't easy. We tend to think it is because we think we're not that bad, but we're, we're terrible. We're not, in God's eyes, we're just as bad as Osama bin Laden or Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or uh, a mass murderer, anybody else, Jeffrey Dahmer, who, by the way, did eventually trust Christ as his Savior, and you're going to see him in heaven. But we just think that, that we're not really that bad, but we are. And God forgave us on the same basis that he forgave everybody else, and so we're to apply that. Now, the word for kindness is krestos. Krestos, and it means to be pleasant, means to be kind, to be good, to be mild. to be. It has the idea of generous. It's not Christos, which is the word for anointed, which is where we get the word for Christ, which is an I instead of an Ada or Iota instead of an Ada there. It's a C-H-R-I, not a C-H-R-E. But it has that idea of generosity. We're kind to people, whether they deserve it or not, because of who God is and what Christ did on the cross, not because of what this little uh, person just did, and they don't deserve to be kind. We, we, it's not focused on the here and now. It's focused on that eternal frame of reference and the, the attributes of God. 
And then the word that's translated forgive, isn't that word afiemi, the verb, or aphasis, the noun, which means to cancel a debt? It is the word, the verb charizomai. And charizomai comes from the root, a Greek word charis, meaning grace. And so it means to be gracious to somebody, to exercise grace on their behalf, which means it's undeserved, it's unmerited. If they got what they deserved, then it would be legitimate to reach across the counter and slap them in the face. But you're not going to do that because you treat them in kindness and you treat them in uh, love because they're in the image of God and because that is how you are to, we're to treat people. Um, so charisma means to show favor or kindness, to be gracious to someone, and it's used to pardon them or to forgive them, to cancel out whatever wrongdoing uh, they might have been engaged in. So that's Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, by forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, a parallel passage to this is in Colossians. Remember, Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians when he was... Uh, when he was in, in prison, and they're written to uh, very close congregations that were relatively close to one another. They have different emphases, but they are very similar in their content. So there's a lot of parallels between those two epistles. And in Colossians 3.13, uh, Paul says that we're to bear, uh, that we are to be kind to one another, forgiving each other, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. We're bearing with one another. We'll come back and look at that word in another context in a minute. Uh, Look at that Greek word. It has the idea of putting up with other people's faults, overlooking those faults, not letting those faults or flaws or failures be a reason to cause us to treat them in a less than uh, kind and gracious manner. It's not easy. Trust me. It's not easy. You probably know that already. Uh, Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And then Paul goes on to to give an illustration of this. If anyone has a complaint against another person in the body of Christ because they've offended you, they have treated you in an ill, ill manner, they have used you in an ill manner, whatever the situation may be, you are to forgive them in the same way Christ forgave you. Think about how many times we have disobeyed the Lord, how many times we have uh, violated his mandates, how many times we have taken his grace uh, for, for granted. And yet again and again and again, we go back to the Lord and we say somewhat flippantly at times, well, Lord, I did this, I did that, I did this other thing, and we just are, know that we're immediately back in fellowship. How easy, how simply the Lord forgives us. And see, he does that only because of all of the horror and shame that occurred on the cross when Jesus Christ bore in his body on the cross our sin during those three hours when he was on Golgotha. And it's because of that that we have forgiveness. So we are to take that to heart and to forgive others in the same way. And so the The text is translated, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also. The implication there is of a, of a command. Now the 
English usually adds something so, something else to make it uh, sound better in English, so you must do. And in your English translations, that's in italics, so that's not part of the original, but it conveys the meaning that is there in the original. So we are to put up with each other when we fail, when we make mistakes, when we offend one another. We are to treat one another in kindness and forgiveness and not hold that against one another. And this takes us to the next uh, point, point number 13, we're to bear one another's burdens. Now, even though Galatians, um, where was it? Colossians, rather, Colossians 3.13 uses the English word bear. That's a different word there. That's uh, The root there is aneko in the Greek. And in Galatians 6.2, it's a different word. It is the uh, Greek word bastadzo, which also has that same idea. It's used to mean the same thing, to put up, to endure suffering because of somebody else's uh, failures. So the command in verse 13, it's a present active imperative, meaning that it is to characterize our lives all the time. This is a standard operating procedure. Present imperatives emphasize something that is to continuously be present in our lives. An aorist imperative emphasizes uh, the the immediate need to put this into, into uh, application. So we are to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, that is, loving one another. So that's... Uh, uh, clear in the verse, there we have the uh, Greek word bastadzo, meaning to lift, to carry physically, but it's used metaphorically to endure suffering with somebody, uh, to uh, put up with or with someone else's failures or flaws, uh, to uh, get involved with their burdens as well as your own. So uh, verse 13, we're to bear one another's burdens. And thus we fulfill the law of Christ. So contextually, going back to Galatians 5, 13, and 14, this continues to illustrate how the believer carries out that mandate of loving one another. So when you're in Galatians and you uh, underline Galatians 6, 2, that goes all the way back to the command in verse uh, 14, for the law, all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what Paul is really developing in the rest of those verses through the end of chapter 5 and down into chapter 6. That's why he talks about the, the fruit of the Spirit and the first quality, the first virtue, the spiritual virtue there is love, is because that's the command that he's just quoted from the Old Testament in Leviticus 19.18. Then we come to the 14th point which is that we are to show tolerance for one another, not the kind of tolerance that the world thinks of in terms of tolerance, which is to uh, say that things that are wrong are really okay. That's the world's view of tolerance. But the, the biblical view of tolerance is that when someone has done something wrong, it's not, uh, we don't do anybody any favors by saying that something wrong is right. 
uh, when someone does something wrong, somebody offends us, then we're going to recognize that they're guilty, rotten, flawed sinners just like we are. And so we are not going to try to judge them or hold them to a standard that's, that's uh, higher than the one the Lord holds us to. So we're to show tolerance for one another in love. This is seen in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 2. With, where Paul says, with all lowliness and gentleness. So he's tying this to humility. Humility, grace, forgiveness, kindness, love are all different facets of the same, uh, of the same thing. You can't show love for someone. You can't be truly kind to them or, for, or truly forgive them if you're self-absorbed. And if you think that everything that happens in life is all about uh, how it impacts your world and your feelings, then it's going to be more and more difficult to get past that. But we all have elements of that in our in our personalities and our sin nature. So Paul says in Ephesians 4.2 that it is with all uh, lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering. So... Uh, to get the context, in verse 1 he states, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, he's uh, in Rome under house arrest, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. There's that same terminology we saw in Galatians, 3, uh, Galatians 5.13. The calling, that is, this is our responsibility within the family of God. Over in 1 John, there's a, several different verses in 1 John that people always have uh, difficulty understanding, and probably one of the most difficult ones is when John says that the one who is born again does not sin. And if you look at that in a certain way, we all, which many people do, they say, well, if you're truly saved, if you're really genuinely a believer, then you don't sin. So you just sinned a lot. In fact, that was a really bad sin, so obviously you must not be saved. Wrong. That's not what it's saying. It is expressing a standard for somebody who's been born into the family of God. Just as a, a parent, a father might say, when you have, as a child, done something wrong, that you have violated uh, the code of conduct that he has established for you, says, well, no member of this family does that. Well, he's not saying you're not a member of the family. He is stating a principle that some, that that kind of behavior is not acceptable conduct for someone who is a member of this family. And that's what John is saying there, that the person who is born of God, the person who is acting and living as a regenerate believer has a standard, and that standard is that they don't sin. It's the same kind of thing that Paul says in Galatians, uh, Galatians 5, uh, 13 through 15, is that if you walk by means of the Spirit, you cannot fulfill the lust of the flesh. You're not going to sin. So Paul says in uh, Ephesians 4, 1, that we are called to live a certain way within the body of Christ. Our salvation does not depend upon it. Our spiritual growth, though, is related to it. Because if we're not obeying God and we're constantly out of fellowship and we're constantly disobedient, 
then the result is that we'll be living in divine discipline and spiritual growth won't take place. So there's a standard for how we are to live as members of the royal family of God. And that's characterized in verse 2 by lowliness and gentleness, that is humility, with long-suffering, which has the idea of makrothemia, has the idea of living a, uh, of, of enduring for a long time difficult situations related to patience. Like the person said, Lord, make me patient, give me patience, and give it to me soon. We're going to have humility with long-suffering, and then the next word is bearing with one another in love. And the Greek word there is aneko, which means to endure patiently, to show tolerance, to put up with other people's weaknesses, because you certainly expect them to put up with your weaknesses. So we need to treat them in the same, in the same manner. Now Colossians 3.13, which we looked at a moment ago in terms of the forgiving one another, uh, uses that same word, aneko, for bearing with one another. It's the idea of putting up with someone's weaknesses or shortcomings, not holding it against them because they lost their temper and yelled at you yesterday or because they uh, broke a trust uh, with you or something along those lines. We're to bear with, bearing with one another, forgiving one another uh, if anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do. Then we come to verse uh, to point 16, which is found in Ephesians 5:21. So turn over there to Ephesians chapter 5. This is it's an interesting context in Ephesians 5, and I think we have uh, just enough time to uh, wrap this point up before we finish this evening. But I want you to look at the context of Ephesians 5. So often when we get into the Word, we're so microcosmic in our analysis of the text that we forget the context. And context often is is just as important in understanding what somebody says in a phrase or clause as the word studies and the technical syntax of that particular clause. And a lot of uh, Bible study, uh, hermeneutical studies in the last 20 or 30 years have moved more in this direction. There's some flaws in some of the things that are being said, but... Um, Overall, it's a, it's a good movement. Now, if you look at Ephesians chapter 5, the basic command that governs the chapter is in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. So, in other words, our lives are to reflect upon the attributes of our Heavenly Father. Uh, we've established that. Uh, Verse 2 says, and walk by means of love as Christ also loved us. Notice again, the pattern is Jesus Christ and his love. Where was that manifest? It was manifest at the cross where he paid the penalty for our sins so that he could forgive us. So we are to imitate God, walk by means of love. That is, the walking is a metaphor for living your life characterized by love as Christ also loved us, gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And then you have a contrast with the but in verse 3 that in contrast to the positive walking in love, there are behaviors and attitudes, attributes that that are inconsistent with that and should be 
removed from the life, but fornication and all uncleanness. That's a general term, anything that breaches fellowship with God. All uncleanness or covetousness, that is greed, materialism, lust. Let not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. In other words, this isn't to characterize the kind of attitudes that people in the, in the family of God should have. Then he goes on, lists a number of different things, and then skip down to verse 8. Verse 8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Now, what does he set up there? He set up this contrast between darkness and light. Darkness characterizes the unbeliever. He is a child of darkness. He walks in darkness. Darkness indicates two things in Scripture. It indicates a lack of revelation, a lack of revelation. When Jesus Christ came into the world, light came into the world, but John says in John 3, men love the darkness rather than the light. It's a rejection of revelation. The second thing that you see in this imagery of light and darkness has to do with righteousness and uh, perfect righteousness as opposed to sin and uh, evil and wickedness. So there's a contrast. You were once darkness, says that every one of us are born in the status of darkness. But now, light in the Lord. That is positional, light in the Lord. Well, if it's positional, that would mean that's something that's true of us all the time, right? Well, it's not experiential. If it were experiential, you wouldn't need a command. It doesn't happen automatically. Positionally, we're light in the Lord, but now we are to walk experientially. Our life is to characterize, be character, uh, is to character, be characterized by light. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit. Now, some of you are looking at a New American Standard, or you're looking at a New, new International Version, or an ESV, or one of the other uh, translations based on the critical text, and your text reads, for the fruit of the light. But the majority text, that is the majority of documents, has pneuma there uh, rather than light. And I think that's a superior reading. It fits better, especially because there's a lot of parallels between what Paul says in chapter 5 and what in Ephesians chapter 5 and what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. And he talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, and I believe he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit here because he's going to connect this to the filling of the Spirit when we get down to verse 18. So he talks about the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness, Righteousness and truth. This is experiential. It's spiritual life production. It is not. Uh, it is not positional truth. It's not positional righteousness. It's not positional goodness. It is talking about that which comes as a result of your spiritual growth and spiritual spiritual maturity. Now, skip down again to verse uh, seventeen. Verse seventeen says, therefore. Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So the contrast here isn't light and darkness. It's not uh, being outside the family, inside the family. The, the contrast here is between being foolish and being wise. So there's this contrast. 
all through here between these two states that a believer can be in. He can either be out of fellowship or in fellowship. That's the terminology uh, that we most often use. And he goes on to say in verse 18, and do not be drunk with wine. Now, in the past, in many, many years, the, the most easy way to understand this metaphor here of being drunk with wine seems to be the metaphor of control. If you get drunk, you have uh, too many margaritas or too many whiskey sours, and all of a sudden the alcohol has wiped out all of your norms and standards, and you are doing things that you wouldn't normally normally do, and your uh, conscience is basically seared, and all kinds of things can happen. And we say you're under the control of alcohol. Well, that seems to fit, but it's wrong. Because what happens when you come under the influence of alcohol is that your volition gets wiped out. It gets impacted by that. Control is a volitional term. But that's not what the Holy Spirit does. He doesn't take over for you. He works through you, but he doesn't take over as if... And people get, have gotten that idea over the years, that if I confess my sins and I'm filled with the Spirit, then the Spirit's going to start making the decisions for me. And that's wrong. That is pure mysticism. Control is a very bad term to use. That's not what we have here. What, if you understand what was going on in the pagan religions in Ephesus at the time, that one of the most egregious forms of paganism was the worship of the Greek god Dionysius uh, or Bacchus. He was the god of wine. Now, how in the world did you get close to the god of wine? You went out and got drunk on wine. And the Maenads, who were the uh, female priestesses who would uh, uh, who were worshiping, get everybody all worked up, would go up into the areas in the hills where they would have these uh, these orgies, and they everybody would drink as much wine as they could, so that the god could enter into them, and they could rise to a level of communion with the god Bacchus. And the way they would know that if they got really spiritual is they would speak in tongues. And so wine was what? It's not talking about control. It's talking about a method, a means. How do you get close to God? How do you get spiritual in Dionysius worship? By means of wine, which fits the grammar. It's a dative there. Don't be, don't be drunk by means of wine, which is dissipation, but be filled by means of the Spirit. It's not control. You're filled with what? You're filled with the Word of God. Now, there's a series of consequences that come from this. Verse 19 says that uh, you have a series of participles expressing them. The first one is speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That is a result of being filled by means of the Holy Spirit. So singing in a worship service is not something you just got tacked on by tradition it is specifically stated to be related to the spiritual life. Verse 20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Submitting to one another 
in the fear of God. This is the Greek word hupotasso, which means to submit, to subordinate, to, to, uh, to follow the orders of someone else. Now, what's interesting is if you look at the, a parallel passage to this, and we'll close with this. I'll come back and review this again next week. It may be a little bit different way of looking at some of this for some of you. Um, if you look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, or 16, the command is to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. doesn't mention the Holy Spirit. It says, let the word of Christ richly dwell in all wisdom. And then what's the result of letting the word of Christ richly dwell in you? First thing is teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's the first result we saw the filling of the Spirit. Second, singing with grace in your hearts, or second, rather, whatever you do indeed, do all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God. That's the same second that you had over in Ephesians. And then it goes on to talk about the, the family, wives submitting to your husbands, husbands loving your wives, children obeying your parents. You have the same results in Colossians 3, 16b and following that you have in Ephesians 5, 19 and following. But you have two different commands. One command says you're to be filled by the Spirit, but you're not told what you're filled with. See, by the Spirit is instrumentality. It's not content. But in Colossians, you're not told what fills you. You're told what you're filled with. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell in you. And so you put them together. It is when you're in fellowship that God the Holy Spirit is able to fill your soul with the Word of God. And when that is applied under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, then it produces character change in your life that is exhibited by uh, singing psalms and hymns to God, uh, thankfulness, grace orientation, and submission to one another. So we'll come back and say a few more things about that next time because that sets up the basis for the whole Christian life. If you don't understand that dynamic and that it is God the Holy Spirit that produces this fruit in you, that we can't do it ourselves. It's not a bootstrap spirituality. It is a spirituality dependent on walking by the Spirit, and only then can we have real spiritual, uh, real spiritual life and spiritual growth. Let's bow our heads together in closing prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be able to think through the Scriptures, see how they connect to one another, how they overlap, and how they uh, continue to challenge us with the fact that we can't do this, any of this on our own. It's all grace. You've provided everything for us. You've provided a complete salvation, and you've provided everything through your Word and your Spirit that we may be transformed into the image of and the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you challenge us with each of these uh, things we've studied, these verses that we've studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.